0: Thank you, Jonathan. That's wonderful. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm sure you're familiar with the tune. Of course, we just sang it there at the end of worship. I don't know if you know the origin of that song. Uh, it's truly inspiring. It's also known as "No Turning Back." Uh, actually, quite frightening story. In the late 1880s, there was a Welsh missionary who was uh, over in India. And in fact, in that time, there was a great Welsh revival, and they were exporting missionaries like crazy over to India. And it was back in the headhunter days in those villages, and the Welsh missionaries were being martyred left and right. And there was a particular. Welch missionary there, who after enduring pretty severe persecution in India, finally saw his first converts in this particularly brutal village there in the, the province of Assam. It was a husband and wife, two children. They professed their faith in Christ. They were baptized. And so the village leaders, the chief and the other leaders, decided to make an example out of the husband. So they arrested the family and demanded that the father renounce Christ or see his wife and children murdered. And when he refused, his two children were executed in front of him. Given another chance to recant his faith, the man again refused, and his wife was killed as well. And then still refusing to recant his faith the third time, the man was finally executed. The witnesses later told this story to the Welch missionary, and they told him that when asked to recant or see his children murdered, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. Then after seeing his children killed, he said, The world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And then after seeing his wife killed, he said, Though no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. And then he was murdered. The story became so well known all throughout India that a famous Indian evangelist at the time named Sadhu Singh Uh, put those words to music for the very first time and then it uh, eventually years later made its way to the Canadian songwriter George Beverly Shea uh, who put it to a westernized tune that we're familiar with today and it became famous in the Billy Graham crusades decades ago as you probably know as amazing as that is what followed was even more astounding because the chief of that village and the others who ordered these family of christians to be killed were so deeply affected by the devotion to christ that this family showed even when facing death itself that the chief and the others submitted their own lives to christ and as a result revival broke out in that village and spread throughout the entire region and families there now for generations to this day have been following jesus christ ever since all because one man who led his family to Christ made a decision to follow Jesus no matter the cost. That's an awfully high price to pay, but he willingly paid it because no matter how much he loved his family and himself, obviously he loved Jesus even more. In Luke 14.33, when Jesus said, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. For people throughout history, including many today in fact, that isn't simply a metaphor for how they express their faith for many it is a literal code by which they live and die people have been losing their lives for centuries for the sake of the gospel of jesus christ and in truth it's still happening today and so i thought it appropriate this morning to tell that story as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of daniel We're in chapter 6, which is what we're studying today. We find Daniel as resolved as ever in his decision to follow after God no matter the cost. And as we continue through Daniel's story, I'd like for us to reflect on that statement. I have decided to follow Jesus and then ask ourselves how deep within myself does that statement truly reside? Is it a surface commitment that we readily rescind at the first sign of embarrassment? Or public scorn? Is it something that we run from the moment that we become uncomfortable in conversation with those who may not believe as we do? Is it a statement that we're willing to conceal anytime it may offend the sensibilities of the unbelievers around us? And what about the possibility of finding ourselves on our knees, as so many of our brothers and sisters do today, who are told to either recant their faith or be shot or have their heads taken off, How many of us would remain true to the gospel in that moment or would we fold under the pressure? And yet even deeper still, if our loved ones, our family members were to be killed in front of us, if we didn't denounce our faith in Christ, how many of us would readily walk away from our stance for the gospel or would we stand firm and simply say, I've decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back? Oh, that we would have that courage, that resolve, that kind of trust in the God that we serve to stand for His name, even unto death. And the fact is, we can have that kind of resolve for Christ, that no matter the cost, we stand for Him and His name, even when death is staring back at us. And the truth is, we must. We must have that depth of resolve, that when we sing those words, I've decided to follow Jesus, that we do so with absolute honesty and resolution, whether in times of relative comfort or times of horrific loss, because our commitment to Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his gospel cannot be dependent upon the level of comfort or discomfort that we may experience in the sharing of it. It cannot be held captive by our fear of ridicule or harm or loss. It cannot be contingent upon how we think we're being perceived by others at any given moment because following jesus christ is an all or nothing proposition there simply is no middle ground there is no room in his great commission to us for an easy gospel that never causes us any kind of hardship taking up our cross daily and following him as jesus commanded us to do in luke nine twenty three is going to mean some challenging days satisfying and rewarding days yes but often very challenging and sometimes very difficult and yet too many in our modern christian culture have allowed compromise to replace conviction comfort to replace risk And personal prosperity to replace a life of service and sacrifice. And so I offer this question for each of us to ponder today. When we say or sing those words, I've decided to follow Jesus. How deep does that decision actually reside within us? Because once we truly make that decision to to actually follow Christ, there is no turning back. Okay, as we work our way through this text, we're going to witness this morning what it truly looks like to make that decision, that kind of decision to follow God, regardless of what the world may throw at us. So let's turn there now to the book of Daniel, chapter 6, and we'll pick up the story right where we left off last week. If you were here then... You'll remember that the Persians have now successfully invaded Babylon and are ruling over that kingdom as the, the Babylonian king Belshazzar was killed during the invasion of the city in 539 BC. It was the same evening that Daniel interpreted the foreboding message of the fall of Babylon written by God's hand on the wall of the palace as the Babylonian king is throwing this massive city wide party and desecrating the sacred vessels of God. And so we open up this portion of the story under the new rule of Darius the Mede. All right, let's read the first three verses together. So at this point, Daniel has served the empire faithfully for nearly 70 years, and here we see him continuing to serve under the new Medo-Persian government. The satraps were rulers over the individual provinces all over the kingdom, and they were responsible for the security and collection of what was called the tribute. It was similar to a tax that was paid to the king to show one's allegiance. And overseeing all of the satraps, or these provincial rulers, were these three high officials, Some translations have them as presidents. And their job was to make sure that the tribute reached the king's treasury safely. So to be a president over the satraps was a high honor and obviously a very important job. And Daniel was one of these three presidents, soon to be ruler over the whole kingdom, over all of them. And because of his faithful diligence... His integrity and his giftedness from God, Daniel, as usual, rises to the top of his profession, which, of course, didn't sit well with his co-workers. These guys are jealous because of his success. Let's keep reading. Verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said... We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is actually an accurate assessment by these pagan rulers who are trying to dispose of Daniel. They cannot find any fault in him, so they go after him by responding to their lack of any kind of evidence that they have of guilt in his life or business dealings by targeting nothing other than his faith, which is the very kind of recrimination, the only kind of claim that anyone should ever be able to make stick against Christians today. In other words... The only true indictment that anyone should ever be able to hold against followers of Jesus Christ is that we're obediently faithful to God and His Word. The other rulers are completely unable to find any guilt in Daniel whatsoever when it came to breaking the laws of the land. So they had to create new laws that they knew Daniel would violate just by way of his being faithful to God so that they could successfully pin some kind of charge on him. Which, by the way, we see happening today. Certainly in Muslim-controlled countries, we see it in communist countries, in fascist countries. It has even begun, unfortunately, to creep into our own country. When, When new laws are created that by design make innocent people guilty simply because they continue to serve God as they always have, it is then that we know that our society is reaching the moral equivalency of the Babylonian culture in Daniel's time. And what does it say about modern society when we begin to mirror the pagan cultures from 2,500 years ago? We stand to learn a lot from Daniel because the same spirit of persecution that he faced then is actually alive and well in our world today. And again, it's even beginning to make some gains in our own country. Let's keep reading and we'll see what happens next. Verses 6 through 9. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him... O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O King, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O King, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Okay, so when verse 6 says that the high officials and satraps came by agreement, which sounds like a very orderly and calm process, that phrase in the original language in the, uh, the ancient Aramaic is the word ragash. It actually means to gather in a tumultuous throng or to come thronging. This was anything but orderly and calm. In fact, the Aramaic word ragash is the equivalent of the ancient Hebrew word ragash, which is pronounced the same, but it's a slightly different spelling, one one letter different. But they carry the same meaning. And one of the more well-known passages in Scripture that uses the Hebrew version of that word is Psalm 2.1, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? probably a better description of the word in that verse right this is specifically in psalms referring to uh, gentile kings who were vassals they were subordinates of the davidic king and they're plotting to overthrow the israelite rule why did the people rage and the the people's plot in vain and the nation's rage right so we're talking about here a volatile gathering of angry people seething in fact over Daniel's favor with the king. And so they get together in an almost mob-like scene and come before the king under the guise of a political effort to help Darius unite the realm. Why? Because at this point in, in the Babylonian uh, saga, in the country there in the kingdom, you had Babylonians, you had Hebrews, you had Medes, you had Persians and others all living within the same kingdom, with different cultural and religious and political backgrounds. And so, most likely, this is portrayed to the king primarily to be more of a strategic political move than it is a religious one, because it would paint the king, in their eyes, as the sole mediator between the people and the gods, who were seen to be the source of all blessing. So this move would attempt to unite their allegiances under Darius, or at least that's how they sell it to the king. When all the while, beneath the surface... We know, of course, there's a different agenda altogether, one that would aim to see Daniel completely removed from the picture. I mean, it's hard to to imagine that a government would ever pass a law with a hidden agenda in it. That's a joke. Governments have been doing that ever since there have been governments. And so they convince the king to pass this law based on a lie. They tell him in verse 7 that all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, they're all agreed That the king should establish this ordinance and enforce an injunction. Well, we know that isn't true. Because Daniel was one of the top three high officials in the entire kingdom. And he obviously didn't agree to this. He learns about it later, as we'll see. So their statement to the king that all the high officials agreed to this is a blatant lie. But it works nonetheless, and Darius passes the law, which forbids anyone from praying to any god for 30 days under threat of being tossed into a den full of hungry lions. And so these evil men knew that they had now set an effective trap for Daniel because he was well known for praying to the Hebrew god three times a day with his window open facing toward Jerusalem. So all that these conspirators had to do was stand outside of Daniel's house at the right time of day and wait. Let's continue the story. Verses 10 through 13. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is a regular practice for Daniel. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making a petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunctions you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Okay, in verse 11, when it says, These men came by agreement and found Daniel making a petition and a plea before his God. You guessed it. It's the same Aramaic word, regash. That's the same word that we talked about used in verse 6. It's used here. It's, this is the same nasty, angry mob bent on Daniel's destruction, and they're snooping around his house. And hatred, uh, Their hatred for Daniel is not only politically motivated, by the way, it's also a racial issue for them as well. They point out to Darius in verse 13 that Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah. Well, Darius knew that full well. He didn't have to be reminded. He had actually quite a relationship with Daniel. These conspirators are trying to malign him based on his identity as a Jew. And it's significant to note here... And actually quite relevant for us today to acknowledge the fact that after Daniel found out about the document and the new law. After he found out, he went to his house and prayed in his open window knowing that anyone nearby would be able to see and hear him. And and by the way, uh, Daniel didn't pray that way because he was trying to impress his neighbors. He wasn't trying to be a public spectacle. If you look back to 1 Kings chapter 8, specifically verses 44 through 50, in those verses, King Solomon is praying a prayer of dedication over the temple, and in that prayer, he petitions God with this request. He prays, If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they're carried away, captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. This sounds just like Daniel and his friends. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned, and have acted perversely, and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind, and with all their heart, in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive and pray toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I've built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. This is the exact precisely exact situation that Daniel finds him in now. He is simply fulfilling the prayer that Solomon prayed for his people should they ever be taken into exile. Daniel's motivation for praying with the window open facing toward Jerusalem is actually just simply nothing more than faithful obedience to his God. And so he goes home after finding out that the new law has been passed, forbidding him to pray the way that he does every single day, three times a day, and he prays anyway. It would be one thing if he knew of the new law and then went home to do what he always did, if he didn't know, I mean, and then got arrested, if he had no idea, and then went home and prayed. But this is something altogether different. Daniel knew that being caught praying to his God would land him in the lion's den. So what did he do when he learned of that? Did he take a break from praying for a month? Did he downplay his faith around those that he worked with? Did he keep his head down and just try to blend in? Right. Certainly he could have at least closed the windows of his house and prayed in a different room facing toward Jerusalem. But Daniel didn't do any of those things. He went home. He opened the same windows as always. He stood exactly where he always did. He kneeled at the point of day that he always did, knowing exactly what would happen to him, and he prayed the same prayer that he always prayed. Because Daniel understood at the deepest level within himself concerning his relationship with God, what we must grasp today concerning our relationship with Jesus Christ, when you decide to follow Jesus, your reputation no longer matters. Daniel was not the least bit concerned with what other people might think about him as he lived his life obediently and faithfully and, by the way, publicly committed to God. He didn't try to hide his faith or downplay his faith or only show his faith selectively. No, Daniel lived before others the exact same way that he lived before God in private as a man of faith and obedience to God and his word, which is the very picture of how we are to live our lives for Christ today. But it is considerably difficult to do when you're more concerned about people's perception of you than you are about God's perception of you. We should fear God, not man. We should fear God's disapproval, not man's disapproval. Probably, I would say, most of us concern ourselves far too much with what other people think about us. And I'll just lump me right into that category with anyone else. Far too much we worry about what other people think about us. By the way, I'm not talking about uh, having a bad name because of bad behavior. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Okay. If our reputation suffers, it should not be because of sin or any other kind of morally questionable behavior. What we're talking about is when you come into disrepute with those in our culture who don't follow Jesus Christ simply because you do. When your reputation suffers for no other reason than your affiliation with Jesus Christ, then count it all joy, as James says in the first chapter of his letter. Because when any part of our lives suffer for the sake of Christ, we're actually then being identified with Jesus Christ in his own suffering, which, although sometimes very difficult, is actually a good thing. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And look, I hear people all the time, particularly in Pentecostal, the Pentecostal tradition that I was brought up in, talk. Talk about the fact that God does not want us to suffer. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That is not true. It's not true. It's not what the Bible says. When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now hear me. I'm not talking about having some sickness... That you've been stricken with and you're suffering for no reason. God didn't plan for us to be sick. He created the world perfectly without sickness. And it is because of our own sin and the fall of man and the curse upon this earth that we deal with sickness. There are types of suffering that God never intended for any of us. You understand that? So when you're sick, that's why we pray for you. And we believe for healing, supernatural healing, if that's what God wants to do. Because it is not His plan or will for you to be sick or hurting in that sense or suffering. What we're talking about is what Peter's talking about. We're talking about persecution for Christ's namesake. Suffering is all about His plan for us to suffer. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily. Suffer with Christ. There are times in our lives when we suffer through things. And it actually is God's will. And I know that can be a hard pill to swallow. And that's when it requires a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment and a lot of trust. That God will see us through what He is allowing us to walk through. But I promise you, it's never for naught. There's always a good reason He's making us more like Jesus Christ in our suffering. Because that's when we identify with Him and His. All right, If we're going to decide to follow Jesus, that is going to mean giving up everything for Him. And the first thing that we have to be willing to let go of is our reputation. If you're going to publicly acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which we're all commanded to do by Jesus himself in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, then you have to be willing to forget your pride and your self-consciousness and any concern that you may have about what others may think of you. It's like the old Western movies where the sheriff kicks open the saloon doors and he tells the bad guy, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Our hearts aren't big enough. For the Spirit of God and our egos to coexist in any kind of harmony. Something's got to go. We cannot serve two masters. This is a part, it's in fact a big part of denying ourselves when we decide to follow Jesus Christ. If you've ever walked down a church aisle during an altar call in front of hundreds of people and you know that... That aisle just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. It feels like you're never going to get there so that you can publicly make a decision to follow him. If you've ever done that, you know that usually the hardest part of doing that is laying aside your ego and making that trip down to the front of the church. I've certainly done it more than once. When we decide to follow Jesus, our reputations no longer matter. So the next time you hesitate to share your faith or even express your faith around others out of fear of being labeled or laughed at or looked down upon, just think about Daniel. Standing in that window, knowing that his reputation was about to be completely obliterated. But he did it anyway, because he loved God more than he loved his own reputation. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. The king is beside himself because he really likes Daniel. There's clearly an emotional connection there. And like the kings of Babylon before him, he recognizes certainly Daniel's value as an advisor and administrator in the government. So he's completely distraught over the fact that, uh, albeit a trick by his other advisors, still by his own decree that Daniel's going to be tossed into this den of underfed lions. And so it says that the king worked all day trying to find a loophole in his own law so that he could spare Daniel. But the angry mob of conspirators intervenes once again verses 15 through 18 then these men came by agreement yes that's the same word regash to the king and said to the king know O king that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that That no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. You can almost hear him laughing under their breath, can't you? Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. That nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So Daniel is served up to the lions for dinner. Sealed off in the den. There's no chance for escape, no chance for outside help. And the king is so overcome that he can't eat or sleep all night. We should take notice here that Daniel, at this point, is an old man. You see those pictures sometimes of this young, ripped guy uh, sitting down in the lion's den. It's not true, sorry. He was an old guy. He was at least in his late 70s at this point, probably more like his 90s or older. This is a guy who has been around and he's seen the sovereign hand of God do some pretty uh, astounding, incredible things in his lifetime, which makes his lack of protest which would be shocking for anyone else seem to almost make sense as we don't we don't see him whining or or protesting or complaining about what is happening to him and it's not as if he didn't have a voice with the king right He was one of the top three guys in the entire kingdom who answered directly to the king. And obviously the king cares deeply about Daniel. If anyone had the clout and influence and opportunity to at least try and secure an exception for himself to this brand new law, it would have been Daniel. But he remains calm and cool and collected. In fact, it's noteworthy that the scriptural account from the moment that Daniel is put into the lion's den until the next day, the entire time that Daniel is with the lions, the focus of the biblical text is completely on the king and his anguish through the night rather than the trauma that you'd expect Daniel to be in while he was down in the pit with the lions. Amazing. Obviously, Daniel had a much better night than the king did because although Darius was worried sick about Daniel's life, Daniel wasn't worried at all. Again, Daniel had learned through his many years with God what we must learn on our own journey with Jesus. When you decide to follow Jesus, your life no longer matters. Now, before you haul me out of here and throw me out of town for that statement let me explain I realize that some might take exception to that and I understand that can be a bit appalling or maybe even sound offensive it may raise the question pastor how can you say that my life no longer matters well the answer is your life means everything to me it means everything to God And it should mean everything to your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, we're supposed to lay our lives down for one another, according to 1 John 3.16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay. Look, the point is not that your life doesn't matter to me or anyone else. The point is that once you decide to follow Jesus Christ, your life should no longer matter to you. In Acts 20, 24, Paul said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Matthew sixteen twenty five, Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his own life for my sake will find it. And we just read 1 John 3, 16. And of course, if you're on the receiving end of that verse, it sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Hey, people are going to lay down their lives for me. That's fantastic. But as followers of Jesus, we're also on the other side of that equation, aren't we? The other side of that verse where we're commanded to give up our own lives for others. And so I know it may sound a little bit jarring to say, when I follow Jesus, my life no longer matters. But please understand the spirit behind that statement, okay? Because it's not a statement about your value or your worth at all. Again, you're worth everything to God. You're worth everything to me and to others. But to yourself, you have to give no account to your own life or assign any value to it other than what Jesus Christ wants to accomplish in and through you. Which, by the way, is a lot. All of, your, all of your value, your sense of worth and identity must be wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Zero in your own merit. Daniel, he got that. Daniel understood that God is sovereign. And whatever happened to himself, kidnapping, captivity, death threats, public scorn attempted murder come what may daniel remained unmoved in his stand for god because he'd made the decision to follow god and there was no turning back from that decision so he willingly laid down his reputation and his very life for the sake of following god knowing that god's way was the best way let's finish the last 10 verses of the chapter now starting at verse 19 then at, day, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I've done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Nice guy. Uh, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions." And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So at daybreak, the king goes down to the lion's den as fast as he can, and he calls out to Daniel in anguish. It says, verse 20, uh, which is the Aramaic word, at sav. It means pained, grieving. The king is in a bad way over the probability that Daniel has been eaten, although I find it fascinating that the king ran down and called out. Obviously, he had some knowledge or faith or understanding that Daniel's God was able to deliver him or he wouldn't have bothered, right? There's actually great irony in the fact that the king who sought to portray himself through this new law as the one, the only one, through whom everyone's requests could be answered to the gods, discovers that he, in fact, is unable to bring about the one thing that he wants to happen for himself. Namely, that Daniel's life be spared through the night. And so in pained grieving, he calls out to Daniel, recognizing that if anyone was going to be able to keep Daniel alive, it would be Daniel's God. And so he calls out, has your God, whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. And almost comically, Daniel having survived the night, which I would still expect to say something like, yes, I'm alive, O great king, please get me out of here. I'm hungry, I'm tired, and I don't know how long the lions are going to wait. But instead, in his usual courteous greeting, he simply says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. And so Daniel, not the least bit concerned about his own life, reassures the king to set the king's mind at ease. Just amazing. The presence of mind and the solid trust and calmness of this man, Daniel. And the result, once Daniel's pulled out of the lion's den and his position is restored, is not only the conspirators are judged and put to death, but the king himself, very reminiscent, by the way, of Nebuchadnezzar, makes a decree all throughout the land, recognizing the one true God and commands that all people respect and fear him. Okay, do you see what happens? When we let go of our own agenda our own plans our own ideas about how life should be and we make a decision a real decision to follow God wherever He chooses to lead us even when it's not where we'd expect to go in life I am certain That when Daniel was a teenager being raised in Jerusalem, that he never expected his life to turn out the way that it did. In fact, most people experiencing a fraction of what Daniel experienced would probably have given up on life while they tried to figure out where they went wrong and why God hates them. And yet Daniel went through all that he did, remaining faithful to God. And here we are today reading about him and learning from him 2,500 years later. Can you see how powerful a life that is committed to God can be even when it doesn't look anything like what we thought it would? King Darius, much like King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, before him, two of the most powerful kings in human history, turn to God because of Daniel and acknowledge that his God is the one true God. Amazing. When we lay down our reputations and our fears and our pride and our very lives for Christ, when we empty ourselves and give everything that we are and everything that we have to him, the result is that he now has a willing and a very empty vessel that he can fill with his Holy Spirit. And that spirit, the spirit of the living God, will lead you throughout your life to all kinds of places, through all kinds of experiences that you could never dream up for yourself. I'll be the first one to testify to that. We've been through some stuff in some crazy places. Alaska, England. I didn't have any idea when I signed up for this deal where God would lead us. And through those experiences... When you follow God like that, other people's lives become changed before you for eternity. Not because we're great and we're we're doing anything uh, on our own merit. Not at all. Because God is great. And when you empty yourself out, He has something He can work with. But the moment that we begin to concern ourselves more with how we might be perceived by others, the moment that we allow our reputation to get in the way, you know what happens? We become impotent completely ineffective for God. And even worse, when you, when you begin to value ourselves over others and over God's will for us, we become totally powerless to affect change in anyone else's life. And so look... If your greatest goal in life is to attain to a certain level of income or savings or retirement or whatever so that you can spend the rest of your life focused on the things that make you the most comfortable or bring you the most personal satisfaction apart from the calling of God in your life, it may be time for some reflection on what God's Word says about you in your life and what you should be doing with it. If day after day you find that your primary concern is for yourself over others... It may be time to reevaluate your commitment to following Christ. I do this often for myself. If you find yourself shying away from conversations about Jesus Christ or the gospel, if you refrain from sharing your testimony with other people because you don't want to embarrass yourself or feel awkward, it may be time to assess your dedication to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it might do all of us some good to consider the true depth of that statement in our own lives when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. And people will point out, and they do, to me, well, it's easy for a pastor to say those things. Pastors don't typically have nearly as much to lose as some folks do, at least materially. Besides, we're expected to tell everyone about Jesus because that's our job. Well, that's true. You got me there. But it is just as true that it is every single believer's job, every bit as much as it is mine to share the gospel, even when at risk to our own interest and welfare. Besides which, I'll tell you that I lived for a time thinking that if I could just amass enough stuff and income that I could spend the rest of my life uh, with little regard for what God might want me to do for others, enjoying myself outside of maybe my immediate family. I certainly understand the distraction and lack of focus that comes with a need to maintain reputation and a sense of worth that is based on accomplishments and attainments. But forget me, look at Daniel. This guy went from the most horrific situation that you could imagine, abducted from his home and family, castrated, assigned a new identity, and forced to live in a pagan culture that flew in the face of everything that he was raised to know and love and believe in. And in spite of that, He rises to the very top of his profession and society. He had money. He had honor. He had fame. He had influence and power and respect. Daniel had everything to lose. In fact, I'd say more than all of us put together. And yet, when he had the chance to maintain his good reputation and keep everything on the cool by hiding his faith for one month, 30 days, Instead, he went about business as usual, putting God first in his life. Given the extraordinary circumstances that he then found himself in, facing death itself for nothing more than being a man of faith, he made absolutely no attempt to defend himself or fight those who stood against him. Much like Jesus Christ, he simply remained quietly faithful to God, counting his own life worth nothing, that only the sovereign will of the Father would be accomplished in him instead of what he might desire for himself. And because of it, lives have been changed for eternity. I'm telling you guys, it's time that believers get this. That we really understand what it means when we say, I have decided to follow Jesus. Because if we've truly made that decision, there is no turning back. There is no retreat, there is no surrender, and there is no hiding it, and there is no denying it. We belong to Jesus Christ. We're not our own. The Bible says we were bought with a price. We are holy and completely His alone. We exist for Him to do with us as He pleases. And the sooner that we get that, the sooner we stop resisting the plans that He has for us and instead embrace the way of Christ and the cross and His will for our lives, the sooner we'll experience the fullness of Him in our lives. And the sooner we'll experience the fulfillment that comes with that. And it's like nothing you could ever imagine. If you want your life to truly count for something, and I know that you do, something eternal, then you have to be able to say with complete honesty from the deepest part of your innermost being, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there is no turning back. I want to ask our worship team to come in lieu of a closing time of prayer that we usually spend...